we're going to begin. I talk a lot about attachment and attachment formulations and the view of attachment. Um, but I wanted to also link it to the, the practice of meditation for uh, enlightenment or liberation of some kind. And what's the, the value of um, practicing and learning the attachment material as actually a, a vehicle for the longer path of liberation. Uh, we could talk about uh, liberation as a, as a right view. You know, the Eightfold Path, the first one is right view or right understanding, to see things clearly the way that they are. And what they're referring to typically is the three characteristics of existence. Uh, anatta, anicca, and dukkha are the Pali words. Anatta is o translated often as non-self or not-self. Uh, anicca is uh, translated as impermanence. And uh, dukkha uh, is translated in a number of different ways. My current favorite is reactivity. So Dan Brown, who is uh, a Tibetan uh, teacher uh, and a uh, Pali scholar translates it as uh, reactivity. Um, the most common translation uh, uh, people use is suffering. Uh, the, the, hu the nature of the human existence is one of suffering, which has never really uh, worked, landed well for me in terms of my understanding. I, have, I, I like to or I have liked to talk about it as um, unsatisfactoriness um, in the sense that you, you're born, you grow old, you get sick and you die and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, the second one is that I if you get something that you really want you end up losing it or you don't get it in the first place or you get something else that you don't want that's another form of unsatisfactoriness or suffering. Uh, and the last one is the subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything, which is a kind of double-edged sword. It's not how you want it, and you're, you're not actually in charge. <laughs> which one is worse? <laughs> <coughs> but even if you were able to resolve all of that stuff, you remain reactive. That's the reason that I like the reactive as the, the translation, that we actually live in this body which has these sensing arrays that constantly interact with the environment and they constantly are producing data about the interactions with the environment and that just seems to keep going. Um, Self or not self is this uh, understanding that there is no separate self of, uh, there's no separate selfing experience that is different from the sensing experience of everything. Another way to put that is that the experience that you have of the self is actually sensed in the same way that everything else is sensed. Uh, not helping. Um, okay, where, where I get stuck with that particular one is in meditation, um, doing concentration, for example, I may be from somewhere, 
So the investigation would be, where are they? Where is the self asking the other person? Where, where is that? Um, it isn't that there isn't a selfing experience. There most definitely is a selfing experience. Um, but what is true is that the selfing experience varies dependent on the conditions of the present moment. And it isn't the same constantly. It isn't. Um, an example might be: uh, Can you remember your five-year-old self? And is it the same self you have now? <laughs> Sometimes it's closer. <laughs> right. I do my Facebook. What is your internal age? And I usually get around thirteen. <laughs> What, what do you have to do to get some, some age-appropriate age? I don't know. Apparently, it's being very rigid. <laughs> the selfing, you know, the, the sense of duality that comes, this is the self, this is the thing that's out there different from me that I'm sensing, is a sensing experience, not that there is a self and there is another thing that you're sensing. That the, the experience of duality is actually a sensing experience the same way everything else is a sensing experience, is what that means. Um, that the conditions of the present moment are the thing that caused that particular experience of selfing to arise, and as the conditions of the present moment change, the experience of self changes. That's awareness, not the self-experience. So there's the object that can be sensed, there's the capacity to sense it, and when they meet, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises, which could be the experience of self, which awareness knows. And then the conditions change, and so that, ex that consciousness of self ends, which awareness knows. What often happens is you jump from the collapsing experience of consciousness self into awareness and it acts as a bridge that creates the illusion of ongoing constant sense of self but really what it is is bridging one selfing experience into the next into the next into the next and it creates uh, the illusion of that um, do you know that, for instance, if I were to ask you to remember what your self-experience was like or who you thought you were at age 10, that you don't have the gear to do that, right? A 10-year-old body has a totally different capacity than the body that you're currently in. So you can't even, uh, you can't even sense what a 10-year-old would sense. You don't have the brain that a 10-year-old brain has. You can't think the way that a 10-year-old has. You can only remember and you can only process the memories in the body that you currently have. So uh, you may be able to remember what it was like being five, but you're remembering it through the capacity of the brain that you have now, through the body of the brain, uh, through the body that you have now. 
the way that memory works is it it's like a shorthand and it causes sensations to arise in the body that were encoded from the body that you were in then and that recreates the experience with which you then know in the present moment so that if you're trying to remember what it was like to be a child in an adult body you don't have the body to recreate the experience so what you're recreating is an adult experience of what it was like to be a child not what the child act or what you actually experienced then we don't make memories of what happens we make memories of what it meant to us at the time this is also something that's important to pay attention to you can't say uh, what happened because we don't remember what happens you can remember what it meant to you but that could be wildly different than what happened it could be close to what happened but it also could be completely different than what happened have you ever um, reminisced with somebody and they have a completely different version than the version that you have that would be that process you can say this is what it meant to me this is what I what the experience was like for me what was it like for you but you can't say this is what happened and you did that to me <laughs> <laughs> remember I remember <laughs> we don't remember dialogue <clears throat> after 12 minutes we don't remember dialogue we remember what it meant to us and we recreate in the present moment a facsimile of what the dialogue meant to us in the way that we have encapsulated our experience of the other person so we we remember or we create new dialogue based on how we we experience the person who was talking and again that could be fairly accurate or it could be wildly off depending on your state of mind when you experience it and what it meant to you um, I remember I got an, an uh, out of the blue a, a, a uh, an invite to friend somebody on Facebook who I'd known in junior high <laughs> and he, he wrote this you were such a lovely person I had so much fun with you I, I'm really hoping that we can reconnect and I remember him as a total bully who <laughs> was just cruel day after day <laughs> So I wrote him, I have a totally different memory. You, you were, he was a, you know, I was in a drama kid and he was a senior and he was got all the good roles and I was like the, the pimply freshman and uh, he was just so mean. So I wrote him an email saying, you were so mean. And he wrote back and he said, I don't recall being mean to anyone ever in my entire life. <laughs> I mean, he's clearly an idealizing dismissive <laughs> from my point of view. <coughs> um, so the insight into self, uh, when you have this insight that it just arises in the moment based on the conditions and that it's not 
solid or permanent or ongoing, then what, what that insight leads to is you don't need to defend it. You just need to explore it as it's arising based on what's happening. Um, and based on your conditioning, you have these habits of generating self. Um, if something oops, gets tough, do you become immediately resilient and put more energy into the thing and gung-ho? That's not what happens to me typically, but <laughs> some people do that. That's based on your conditioning, right? <clears throat> what is that selfing experience? And when you're not identified with the sense of self, I remember <clears throat> I was talking to a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, and... and uh, all of a sudden she got really angry and she was just this blast of anger and I noticed this very defensive defensive sense of self arising um, but then I know she's a good friend of mine and uh, she cares about me and so rather than needing to defend the experience I said what's going on this, this, is, this is very different than what I would expect to have happen from the things that I was saying. Are you all getting wet? I'm not enjoying it. I'm not enjoying it. And she had interpreted what I, what I said as critical, even though that, that wasn't what I meant. And, uh, and responded with anger to being criticized, which is pretty normal, right? Um, and so it was easy to resolve because there was no defense of self on either of our part after that came out. So if you remember on the mentalizing scale, um, I talk about these things regularly, so if, if you haven't heard me talk, you won't know what I'm saying by the mentalizing scale, so I'll just fill it in. But um, there are four dimensions of mentalizing where you want to track your thoughts. One of them is automatic versus controlled thinking. We mostly go along in an automatic fashion, just flowing. And then when something doesn't meet our understanding of what's happening, uh, we want controlled mentalizing to come on and investigate what's happening. So um, saying to somebody, wow, that didn't land at all the way that I intended it. What's, what, how did you take it? Is the controlled mentalizing monitoring the automatic processing rather than moving into a position of solidified self and needing to defend the position, right? That's this insight into self. You do want to have this brilliant accomplished sense of self arise whenever you need a brilliant accomplished sense of self but when you don't need it you want to also let it just dissolve that's the insight into self what you'll notice is in the selfing experience you have the capacity for tremendous suffering around who am i and what am i doing and what do i have and all of that stuff and if you don't uh, identify with a sense of self and just let it go the suffering goes too and if you can shift out of the self-centric view into the not-self-centric view, then there's very little suffering. And that's really what this process of freedom is that we call uh, liberation, in and out of that. Now, of course, I'm too hot, 
and I'm going to turn the mister back on. Because <laughs> I would rather be wet. There is water in there if you want something. Um, Onicho or impermanence uh, is that nothing lasts. Um, we, we like to create these bubbles of, I like to call them like bubbles of security. We think that the social order is going to hold so that when we walk to our car to drive away, we don't feel frightened about uh, um, walking to the car. It was so funny, coming from New York, in my loft in Chinatown, I put up bars when I first moved in and they broke through them. And I left up the first pair of bars and I just put a second pair of bars up over them and they broke through that. And then I put up a third set of bars over the second and first set of bars and they never were able to get through all three layers of bars after that. Of course, I had nothing left for them to steal at that point. <laughs> so when I came to LA, there were no bars. And I was living on the, in a house on the ground floor and the windows just opened and I couldn't sleep for weeks because I was afraid that somebody was going to come in the window. Um, and nobody came in through the window. I don't know what it is about, about that, but in certain areas of town, you don't need bars. Um, we've all made a collective agreement not to come in through each other's windows. Um, but then you get used to it. Uh, this impermanence thing, nothing lasts. Everything arises and passes. Each sensing experience arises and passes, and each thing itself arises and passes, including your body arising and passing. Um, what you may notice is that some things you want to last. You may want a moment to last, and then there's a little bit of suffering because it doesn't last. Or you may want uh, something longer than that to last. Uh, and the, the tighter you cling to the desire for it not to last, the, the greater the source of suffering is. Or what happens is you don't want to experience losing it, so you withhold yourself from investing it in the first place. That's, I think that one of the things in our culture that, that we uh, experiences a, I, I think the headline I read the other day was a crisis of meaning. That people are, they withhold themselves from engaging in the activities of life with real vigor because they don't want to lose, lose it later and that they think that in doing so they're, they're presenting, they're preventing themselves from having the experience of loss. Right, whatever. Um, or, you know, these, these very public suicides lately uh, where um, 
it's hard to, um, in terms of conventional success, it seemed like all of that was in place. Why would that be a place of such despair that you didn't want to continue that crisis of meaning? Um, are you uh, engaged in uh, activities which are socially important or have a high social ranking that may not have meaning to you? Or uh, do you engage in things that have meaning to you even though they don't tend to have social value to them? Th this is the, that kind of question. What, how much of your time, energy, and resources do you spend engaged in activities that have real meaning to you? Um, and if you haven't organized yourself and your time, energy, and resources in those ways, why haven't you? Because if you don't engage in activities that have real meaning to you, you have a life that doesn't have meaning. You can have all sorts of um, privilege. You can attain a lot of privilege in life. But if it doesn't have any real meaning to it, it doesn't satisfy that that sense that, that life is valuable and that, that doesn't provide you the energy to engage it. Um, <coughs> uh, if you withhold yourself from things because you're afraid to lose them, you're going to lose them anyway. This is the deep understanding of impermanence. Nothing lasts anyway. There's no possibility of withholding yourself from experiencing the loss. You're going to lose it anyway. So then that puts you at this uh, fork in the road. In one direction is nihilism. Nothing matters. I'm going to lose it anyway. Why engage anything? And so you keep restricting the, the meaningfulness of life, which leads to this kind of despair about why do anything. And the other direction is to be fully engaging in every moment that you can engage in because you know that the moment will be lost anyway and if you don't get everything out of it that you can get it in the moment then you don't get it later. There's no later. That's the other thing. That this I'll do it later. There's no later. <laughs> There's only now. There's only what you can do now. And if you don't do it, it's lost. So you can, in, 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 in delusion, think that you can do it later or that something can be preserved um, from the present moment. Something can be withheld and it will still be useful uh, later. It might be useful in another moment, but in terms of what you could have done with it in this moment, that's lost. Is that making sense? Have you noticed that we only exist in the present moment, that there is no other moment. <clears throat> and then the question becomes, what is it about the present moment that's so unbearable that we can hardly inhabit it? That we're constantly shooting into the future with planning or, or retreating into the past with memory. Uh, and then the, the reactivity or the unsatisfactoriness. Uh, are you young enough so that you haven't really come to grips with aging? <laughs> or are you old enough that it's a relentless march? 
Um, I, I haven't adjust, I don't adjust very well to these kinds of things. My internal image of myself is, you know, solidly a 20-year-old wandering around the planet. It's just a constant a rudeness whenever I see a reflection of my current self. <laughs> um, so, what do you do with that? I don't know. I've been trying for years to get them to sort of come together better, but I, they don't. <coughs> um, I, and, and as a result of that, my planning um, always, uh, or frequently, uh, I run out of energy before I run out of calendar. Um, because of that, and I keep trying to um, pull back, but then um, things come up, and I say yes. Just seems like going full speed is the is the best speed. <coughs> so then, in understanding liberation from this point of view, we we see clearly that these are the conditions in which we live, and. Um, there is no sense of self, nothing lasts, that we're in a body that's going to age and die, and that's how it is. Um, and then we begin to notice all of those resistances that prevent us from actually accepting the terms the way that they are. I mean, the terms remain the same. These are the terms of the human condition. This is, these are the terms of, the, of life, of almost is there any life on this planet that doesn't have those terms? Um, so, you know, some things are quite slow. Um, the shifting of the tectonic plates is very slow, but it, Hawaii is erupting, Guatemala is erupting, the plates are shifting. Uh, friendships come and go, romantic relationships come and go, jobs come and go, money comes, everything comes and goes. Do you get, are you used to that flow of things and not clinging, not wanting it to be different than it is? Um, craving being not wanting what is, or, um, no, craving being wanting what is to be different than it is, aversion being not wanting what is, and delusion being not able to inhabit the present moment because whatever it is about the present moment isn't what you want in some way. So in some sense liberation is to see these things clearly and to be able to inhabit that experience without needing something to be different than that. Um, and then uh, in each moment tracking the, 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 the subtle impurities that prevent that view from taking hold. But how do you teach yourself to track those experiences? And that's where I think the attachment descriptions are, are so useful. Because the whole processes are so complex, um, if you can't track complex models, it's very hard to make progress in, an, in understanding that and easy to get caught in the fixations of self or permanence or wanting things to be the way that you want them. 
It also helps to integrate the whole experience. Uh, we talk so much about conditioning. The way that you are, you experience a self and world, the way that you process data is affected by your conditioning and everybody's conditioning is different. So we're all constantly experiencing things differently. This is one of the fundamental uh, understandings uh, in Buddhism that we each have our experience of what's happening. We don't have the experience of what is happening. Uh, we, have the ex we don't even have the experience of what's happening we have the experience of what it means to us in the moment that it's happening. Um, can you tell the difference between that? Can you tell the difference between uh, this is what's happening and this is what it means to me? The Buddha talked about that as we don't ever experience anything directly, we experience it uh, as a reflection of our sensing experience. <coughs> so we have the capacity to sense um, see here, feel was that technique to investigate the actual sensing experience. You added um, smell, which is uh, one of the five senses, so touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. And then I asked you in the meditation to investigate mind, which is the where your attention goes. So if you just let your attention go wherever it goes, what aspect of that experience is that, and in Buddhism we call that mind, the, the, the where your attention is drawn, to which sensing experience out of the array of sensing experiences, where your attention goes is called mind, and then the tracking of the sequencing of individual sensing experiences is also a function of mind. So we don't even get the whole experience, we just get where our attention was in that moment and then we string those together and that's what we create our narrative out of. Even though we can only sense one thing at a time consciously and um, and there are many things happening at the same time. So we create this narrative of individual mind moments based on our tiny selection of the array of things that's happening, and then we generate a narrative around that's what happened based on that very se selective process of sensing. So it's completely possible that somebody could have created an entirely different sequence of sensing moments, of mind moments, and that their narrative would be based on a completely different experience, even though we were both sitting, talking to each other. Is that making sense? That's, that, that is to be in the, uh, a liberated mind or an understanding of what's actually happening. So you don't need to defend your particular string of sensing moments because you know that it's going to be different from everybody else's string. And everybody else's string is just as valid as your string of sensing moments. Is that making sense? So you can be easily with other people without getting so defended, so caught up in the experience of your string of sensing moments. <coughs> if you look at a, a, attachment descriptions, um, they talk 
uh, in general terms, how uh, conditions affect the, the, the development of the capacity to sense, the, the development of the capacity for attention. In a secure uh, experience, um, the, the needs of the child are met well enough 30% of the time. So we're, we're also not talking about something that's extraordinary. I mean, when was the last time you took a test and what was the grade you got when you scored 30 on it? <laughs> So for secure attachment, we're, this is a low bar, right? And uh, if you didn't have a, a caregiver that was sensitive uh, to you at least 30% of the time, you begin to form different patterns of being that are, that are predictable. Uh, so the human condition is also pretty predictable in terms of the kind of care that you need. Um, a secure person views themselves as capable of getting their needs met. And this comes from the experience of their needs being met 30% of the time. Uh, you know, you're a newborn, you're laying there, you can't even sit up, you can't roll over, you can't make sense of anything because your brain isn't formed and you look as cute as you can and hope that somebody comes. <laughs> to take care of you. <laughs> That's basically the human condition. And if no if you if you if you you're looking damn cute and nobody comes, it creates this bewildering sense of what's going on. And then that's distressing and so you whimper and then you intermittently cry, then you cry, then you go into tantrum mode shrieking. Because if nobody takes care of you, you're going to be dead in an hour. That's the, ex that's the experience of an infant, right? Um, so a secure infant has the experience of that all working and somebody coming and taking care of them. And so they think, I'm good at this. If I cry out to the world and the world comes and takes care of me. And, and they go through life as if that's true right? That's view, right? They think of that being true, therefore I'll just act that way and see what happens. Right. So if you could switch yourself to that view, it would probably work for you too, right? It isn't that, that there's something extraordinary there. But what happens if that doesn't happen? What happens if you call out to the world and, and nothing happens? Or you call out to the world and it's perfunctory care, but it's not nurturing, right? Um, what happens if you call out to the world and sometimes they come and sometimes they don't? But if you call out to the world and they come but they harm you? Those are all the, the, the kind of conditions that generate these attachment views. We want to be able to see in each moment of sensing how the mind interprets the sensing experience. So um, yeah, we call this ultimate reality versus conceptual reality in Buddhism. In ultimate reality, it's just the pure sensing experience. So in the see, hear, feel technique, 
feel, which I didn't say, but I might have, was that smell and taste are included in the feel aspect. Um, you're dividing the sensing experiences out and looking just at the function of sensing, just the data of sensing. And then you notice the conceptual reality, the thing that they make. Um, sensing the com combination of all of the sensing experiences into solid self and solid world. Content versus function might be another way to do it. Most of us can already de detect content or function pretty well, uh, content um, pretty well, but we don't detect function. Or we may not have developed the capacity t to know, oh, this is uh, see, hear, feel. Uh, this is the process of perception that creates the, the solid world. See, hear, feel, the ultimate experience of sensing. Then you'll notice Vedna or feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality in the sensing experience. You'll notice the process of perception that the vibrating, unformed, unfixated sensing experience is compared to the database of previously sensed experience. And if there's a match, the, the sensing experience is fixated into something based on your previous perceptions of that thing. If you, you'll notice if the body-mind doesn't have a reference, the sensing experience stays unfixated. And then as soon as it thinks it knows what it is, it fixates. And it's very hard to break the fixation once it, once it happens. Once the knowing what it is attaches to the moment of sensing, it becomes that. We want to be present for this process of sensing, this process of, I mean, perception, so that we can see in the comparison back and forth between this is what I'm sensing and this is what I've made it into, uh, in that back and forth, the reflection of the mind state that's there. If the mind is equanimous, often the thing that you make out of the sensing experience is a pr an accurate reflection of what that is. And if there's a distorting mind state present, uh, the sensing experience passes through that mind state into the conceptual reality and can, can become quite distorted by it. So if the mind is angry, it can quite uh, distort your perception of what's happening. If the mind is sad, if the mind is excited, the mind is um, lustful or joyful, whatever it is, that process of sensing passing through the mind state distorts the conceptual reality that we make out of the sensing experience. That makes sense? Uh, the, the Zen people have a, a saying which is, what water asks the fish? If you're constantly, uh, if you've been using the same conditioned interpretations of things since you were pre-conscious, how do you recognize the distortions that you build in to the creation of self and world? Um, when we begin to look at attachment patterning, we can see quite clearly what, what those patterns of view might be. 
a secure person thinks of themselves as capable of getting their needs met and they think the world is filled with people who will meet their needs and so they go about the activities of life as if that were true. And so what they tend to find are people who are willing to meet their needs. They understand that in order to get that to happen that they have to take care of the other person. So they're out in the world looking for people who will take care of them in a way that they want to be taken care of and they know that they have to take care of that person in the way that person wants to be taken care of in order for that relationship to work. So that's what they look for and that's what they find. In a dismissing adult they think that there's nothing that they can do to get somebody to take care of their needs to just give that to them so they think that they have to take it. So they're looking for people that they can take what they want from. And that's what they're finding. And because they believe that nobody will take care of them voluntarily and that they have to take it, it never occurs to them to reciprocate in a relationship. So they're looking for people that they can take what they want from without having to reciprocate. And that's what they find because that's what they're looking for. But what that ends up in is, is many relationships, typically. A coming and going of relationships, because most people don't want that. They don't want to have to take care of somebody else and get nothing in return for it. So they don't stick around. Somebody who has a preoccupied uh, attachment strategy sees the world as unpredictable and so what they think is that they're strangely incapable of getting their needs met but that everybody else has figured it out so all they have to do is get the other person to take care of them and they'll be okay. So they're looking for people uh, that they can convince to take care of them. Uh, or another way to put it is they're looking for people uh, that will take care of them because they know how to take care of them. But they don't necessarily think that they have to take care of anybody else because they're incapable. Um, so often you find the dismissing and preoccupied people in relationships because the dismissing person, in order to defend themselves against the experience of not being good enough to get anybody to be willing to take care of them, inflate themselves into this sort of grandiose view. I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. <coughs> so you should take care of me and I shouldn't have to reciprocate because you're next to greatness. And the preoccupied person is thinking, all I have to do is be the person that they want me to be and they'll take care of me. And so they present themselves as helpless uh, and, uh, and hope to get taken care of. Often what they end up doing is caretaking to get the other person to take care of them. If you take care of somebody so that they'll take care of you, that's a different bargain than taking care of them because you're taking care of them and their needs. So in some sense the Preoccupied person is using care as a way of manipulating the other person. I take care of you 
so that you'll take care of me, I don't take care of you, because I want to take care of you well. Making sense? It's a distinction. And then fearful people think that they're incapable of getting their needs met, and they think asking for their needs to be met is putting themselves at risk of abuse. And so they would rather do without than, than uh, risk asking someone to take care of them. Um, <coughs> what you can notice in your life is these patterns of relationship. How do you do it? which begins to inform you of this process of view, this process of seeing the world, this, the, the way of holding yourself, the view of yourself. Do you think of yourself as capable or not capable? Um, do you think of other people as capable or not capable? Uh, these are views, right? These are ways of seeing. And you can begin to detect the pattern that's there. A secure person, uh, it's a mutual relationship. They think themselves capable and they think other people capable. I'm capable of getting my needs met. You're capable of meeting my needs. So there's a mutual capability there. I'll take care of you in the way that you want if you'll take care of me in the way that I want. So both people are capable. With a dismissing person, they think of themselves as incredibly great, and they think of everybody else as incapable. It's a way of preserving uh, the experience that they had of profound neglect as children. If you're a child uh, and you're neglected, how do you explain that self, that experience to yourself? Why is it that you don't get taken care of? As a child. As a child. That's right. There's something wrong with you. That's typically what happens to people who have neglect. They think that there must be something wrong with them, and that's why they don't get taken care of. Um, but that's an unbearable experience for a child, and so they, they. Uh, flip it and they become the greatest thing as a defense against the terrible sadness of not being worth being taken care of. So at the core of that is this terrible sense that you're not worth anything because nobody took care of you, but because that's so painful, you project this, I'm, I'm, I'm a totally great person that you would want to take care of. You see the flip. The preoccupied person never develops a sense of confidence because sometimes the thing that they do gets care and sometimes it doesn't. And, it, and because their caregiver is so unpredictable, they can't figure out what to do to get reliable care. So they become the, the problem. Something's wrong. I can't figure this out. You seem to be able to provide the care whenever I get it right. So you're capable, but I can never quite figure out how to do it, how to ask, how to be the thing that you want in order to get you to take care of me. So the problem must be mine. Uh, and it's, it's a different, um, it's a response of uh, 
that leads to a sense of inauthenticity. The way that I am, my authentic expressions don't work to get the care that I want. So I have to become the thing that you want me to be in order to get you to take care of me. And sometimes I get that right and sometimes I don't. So I'm constantly developing these other inauthentic responses as a way of trying to get you to take care of me. And then the fearful person just tries to be invisible. The fearful child just tries to be, they, they, they look for a way of being completely invisible so that they won't be attacked because they can't predict uh, the care that they're going to get. So these things are behaviors that you can track in your adult life and you can, you can see how you function in relationships um, in, a, in a broad sense, in a gross sense. Uh, and, and then in understanding that, understand that certain conditions happened to you in order for you to develop that view and then you can begin to track that. So that sense of self that says, um, I can't take care of myself, and that sense of the world, that the world is a dangerous place, is something that you can track. Understand that this is a view and that it's not real. We understand that through the three characteristics. So this is a, a way that you formulate. So there's a mind state that creates the conceptual reality from the the ultimate reality, that you can begin to track the ultimate reality, watch the process of distortion into the creation of conceptual reality, and investigating that, learn everything that you need to learn from a conventional classical insight point of view, and at the same time um, moderate your functioning in relationships so that you have better support in, in your in the activity of being alive in the world. We are, we are animals that live in complex social networks. That's how we are. That's how we function. And the better you are at establishing uh, a social network, the more secure, in a sense, you'll become. What's useful about this is that If you have a core group of people who support you, you're able to explore better. You're able to explore what's meaningful to you. If, you're, uh, if you need to pursue explorations around high-profile, powerful positions so that you can overcome the sense of not being worthy to get people to take care of you, you may end up exploring things that don't actually have any meaning to you. And so you end up getting all of these positions that have high social value to defend yourself against this, this underlying core of, of feeling uh, unworthy and, uh, and not put the time, energy, and resources that you need into pursuing something that's actually meaningful to you. And so you're in a, in a place of despair. If you have to project this full sense of, uh, of the self in order to feel uh, um, 
safe, then very often the actual needs that you have are unexpressed. Um, in all of these insecure ways of being in the world, the authentic need is often not expressed. If you ask uh, for an inauthentic need and the need is met, the authentic need is still unmet. And so you could be asking for things and getting them and still be in a state of deprivation because what you actually needed isn't being addressed. So that underlying authentic expression is what's needed in order to find meaning. The time, energy, and resources that you have in order to explore what's actually meaningful, you, actually meaningful has to be sent in that direction. That pursuing things that don't actually have meaning because they, they have um, power or protection in them will not satisfy the, the meaningfulness that comes from ex exploring what actually has meaning. We are a very materialistic society and so we spend a lot of time pursuing material goals, but they often are not um, satisfying for that authentic need for meaning. And so uh, the, we spend a lot of time in activities uh, to get money in order to, to pay for the material life that we have. Um, and less and less time in the pursuit of things that actually have meaning. If you happen to find uh, activities that uh, are very meaningful but have low social value, they also have low compensation in our culture. So, that you, so you may not easily find a way to pursue the things that have meaning and also then support uh, the material standing that you want? Um, probably not. It's very stable. You, um, what you would need to do is notice the patterns and then learn the pattern of secure attachment and then choose secure responses over the conditioned responses. But this is still pretty much straight up uh, Buddhist understanding of how to relieve suffering. You, you examine the means that you're currently using, evaluate whether they're skillful or unskillful, and if you notice that they're unskillful, you suppress the use of them and replace them with skillful means. So if you were to do that, then I think that you would notice that the attachment strategy changes quickly. There's a couple of levels of change. One is the, the dynamics of your uh, current relationships. If you learn the, um, the skill set of secure functioning in relationships and you get yourself to choose those responses, the dynamics of your relationships will shift pretty easily into much more secure functioning and you don't have to address the deep underlying conditioning for that to happen. You, you have to be a, a lot of the time in controlled mentalizing for that to happen. So you're watching the automatic flow of, of processing and the making of uh, self and world 
from a controlled perspective and each time the automatic processing is heading in the direction of reinforcing insecure attachment, you manually shift yourself into secure functioning. Does that make sense? In order to do the deep conditioning work, you'd have to change the procedural operations so that the automatic flow of decision-making moves in the direction of secure out of the direction of insecure. And so that's another level of work to do. You would have to, f uh, in Western terms, we would call that procedural memory, and, and in, in Buddhism we would call that the process of perception. You would have to uh, seed the database, the perception database, with secure responses in order to get that process to choose a secure outcome. So you have the sensing experience, you have the the evaluation of the quality of the sensing experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then you have mind that comes in and evaluates what that sensing experience is. And part of that process is of evaluating what that sensing experience is, is how to respond to it. And if you don't have the secure strategies embedded in that process, you don't think of the thing the secure thing to do. You think of the thing that you know to do. So you have to go through a process of embedding the secure possibilities into that process of perception so that you have the possibility of choosing the secure response in the flow of automatic uh, uh, activity. Is that making sense? Should I explain it again? I'm happy to repeat it. Part of it is to understand the conditioning around a, your attachment strategy well enough that you can uh, mentalize it. So you have the automatic versus the controlled mentalizing. That's where you're watching just what the body-mind does from a controlled place and intervening if if the outcome of the automatic processing is unskillful. The next one is self and other. So you, you track the experiences of self and then you uh, track the perception of the other. This is uh, who I am and this is how I'm experiencing this and this is how I think you're experiencing this. Back and forth, self and other. In in the Satipatthana Sutta, it's described as mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside. In the, um, the third one is interior versus exterior. And so uh, if we continue with the Satipatthana Sutta, it's uh, mindfulness of inside and outside. So mindfulness which tracks self, uh, mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside which tracks other and then the reactivity between self and other. The last one is cognitive versus affective, or thinking versus feeling, thinking versus emotion. These are dimensions of mentalizing, and so we want to train the mind to mentalize each moment in th these contexts. Um, 
if you look at somebody else, can you read them? Can you read their facial expression and body language and understand that that exterior presentation is a reflection of their interior feeling state? Can you do that? Or, uh, some people can do it and some people can't. And you could track that to an attachment conditioning. Uh, certain patterns of mentalizing are indicative of different attachment strategies. A secure person has a very flex flexible and adaptive mentalizing capacity that just comes from that kind of conditioning. A dismissing person tends to be uh, stuck at the controlled pole and they don't notice the automatic very much. They tend to be self-oriented and have a really hard time tracking empathetically the experience of the other person. They tend to be interiorly oriented. Their own experience is the one that they think is true and they don't take in much data from the outside. Their perception, their internal perception of what's happening is what they rely on and because they're empathetically blind to other people, they don't take much information in from that, so they don't check it very often. And they tend to be cognitively oriented and not emotionally oriented. The only way that they can uh, exist with that uh, intense experience of abandonment and rejection as a child is to uh, uh, repress awareness of emotion. So they tend to be very logical thinking-oriented people. Um, so, if, uh, and then preoccupied people tend to be the opposite. They tend to be totally automatic and they don't, don't monitor it. They tend to be other-oriented, so they're very focused on the other person. Since the other person needs to take care of them, they get totally focused on the other person and they lose awareness of themselves. They tend to be exteriorly focused because they're always focused on the other person. They lose track of their interior experience and they tend to be very emotional and not very logical in thinking. That's one of the reasons that um, dismissing and preoccupied people match so well. They, the two people come together and create one, uh, one complete mentalizing set. So what you would begin to do in, in this uh, way of thinking about it is examine what mentalizing capacities you have and then begin to learn how to do the other ones so that you have the flexibility, the dimension in, in mentalizing. Is that making sense? So these are all discrete skills that um, Theravada or uh, Vipassana meditation are really good at. You can devise meditation strategies that actually just work on one, one dimension of uh, mentalizing. Um, so uh, one technique would be a noting feeling states technique. Um, do, you, do, you, do you know the noting feeling states technique? You track the moment by moment experience of emotion in the body. If you're dismissing, of course, you don't have much um, sense of the, the emotion in the body and so you're developing the, the uh, emotional aspect of the cognitive emotional dimension of mentalizing by doing noting feeling states on yourself 
learning to track moment by moment the mo emotional experience. But once you get that, then you begin to track the emotional experience of someone else. So you do one note of mo uh, noting feeling states on yourself and then one note of noting feeling states on the other person. That's developing uh, the, the self and other dimension of mentalizing and it's developing the interior-exterior experience of mentalizing. Uh, in the beginning, you're just doing the best you can. You're just getting the body-mind to track the other person, right? Which would develop the, cog the automatic versus controlled mentalizing. And the way that would work is if you were dismissing, you would be very controlled in your mentalizing, and so you would think that you know the answer, but then you would check with them to see, and then you would be able to see the automatic processes as accurate or inaccurate because you actually checked it. So that's, that's a really simple meditation technique, which is then developing the mentalizing capacity of all of, all of those dimensions. One, one technique applied in two ways. Um, Ken Wilbur has a list of um, uh, spiritual development, the first of which is to recognize that you have a mind state and other people have a mind state and that they're not the same. This is a f the fundamental uh, experience of uh, self, no self. Uh, we talked about it before. The mind focuses on one thing at a time and then remembers the sequence of mind moments and we create the narrative of self and world based on that thread. Uh, everybody's conditioning is different. Uh, we, uh, when you really get into exploring that, what you'll notice is that the mind goes to high-value targets. You have a hierarchy in your, in your system of what things are important to pay attention to and what things aren't important to pay attention to. And that's reflective of your conditioning, right? Um, you learned what things worked and what things didn't work and you gave more value to the things that worked and the things that didn't work and you learned to track all of the signs of all of those things. So, in a dismissing childhood, what worked to get attention was to idealize the caregivers. So, you look for things that could be idealized and give them high value, so your attention is drawn to them. Um, in a, in a preoccupied uh, childhood, helplessness was what, what got you taken care of, and so you, were, you learned to scan the, the environment for problems that you could become helpless around. And so, whereas the dismissing person is constantly looking for things that can be idealized, the preoccupied person is constantly looking for problems, so that where your attention is drawn is based on your conditioning and you can begin to see that. In seeing that your conditioning uh, has created these hierarchies of value, you can see the process of how you form the string of mind moments that creates the underlying basis of the narrative that you track.
if you know that you have a particular attachment strategy, then you get a whole list of things that you can look for that would illustrate this stuff where um, if you didn't have that basis, you would just be evaluating everything without these uh, patterns, these uh, pre-known distinct patterns. Uh, so it, in some sense, uh, it's recreating the wheel, whereas you could just get on the chariot, right? Uh, you could look for a pattern and recognize it much easier than you could invent a pattern to look for, if that's making sense. Um, in, in insight practice or Vipassana practice, some insights have more value than other insights. And so if you have a list of the important insights to look for, uh, it might make it easier to actually find them. Uh, the, uh, some teachers don't want to describe that because then students pretend to have the insights rather than actually have the insights. So one way of validating that a student is actually having the insight that they're supposed to be having is by not telling them what insight they're supposed to be having. And then they just, if they describe it, then you know they've actually had the insight and then you can point it out. Um, and uh, people have decided preferences over which way to go. Uh, I like, I um, have a bias toward, um, in Tibetan what's called pointing out the great way kind of teaching. Uh, and one of the reasons that I gravitated to Shinzen was bec for the same reason uh, is that there's lots of instructions, lots of declaring of what to look for. Um, I have not been somebody who struggled with pretend mode uh, in, in my meditation practice. I've never pretended to have an insight uh, that I didn't have uh, because uh, I wanted to have a, a particular response from the teacher. And that may also be reflective of your attachment strategy. Preoccupied people tend to spend more time in pretend mode uh, than um, people who don't have that attachment strategy. I'm not preoccupied in that way. Is that all making sense? We've run out of time. I have a retreat coming up. There's still a few places left in it if you want to go to it. it's. It starts on June 29th and ends on um, the Sunday after the 4th of July. I guess it's the 6th or the 5th. Um, we do morning meditation, so if you don't know about that, um, it's uh, a live conference call Monday through Saturday morning at 7.30 where I do a live guided meditation and then you have there's a Q&A afterwards. Um, I'm also doing... Uh, the Idealized Parent Figure Protocol, which is the Attachment Repair Protocol. We do AAIs if you want to know what your attachment strategy is, and also meditation mentoring. 
The classes here are offered at a Donna basis. The suggested Donna for a class is $20, but uh, Donna is the Pali word for generosity. You're actually practicing generosity for yourself. So uh, if $20 doesn't feel generous, give it an amount that does. If it's too much, give it an amount that's commiserate with your resources. But do, each time you come, uh, give something. Uh, and if you don't have anything to give, that's totally fine. We as a community are happy to provide this for you. You can put cash in the bowl, and I, ha I can take a, a card if you prefer. Thank you for coming.